good to see you. Are you well? Good. You happy? You having a nice morning? <laughs> so good, isn't it, just to hear some of those uh, new worship songs, to hear some of the, the tracks from that album. I, um, I think it's great that we have such an abundance of worship in this church and stuff from Hillsong and Bethel and Elevation, all those. But I think there's something really special about worship that comes out of your own context and your own congregation. I was listening this morning um, to the album on Spotify and it sounded really good and I do encourage you um, to pick up a copy or give it a listen on the streaming service um, later on. Um, I was online this week, as I often am as a millennial, um, and I came across this email that's been sent by an American woman to her husband um, who was working away at the time. And this is what it says. To my darling husband, before you return from your overseas trip, I just want to let you know about a small accident I had with the truck when I turned into the driveway. Fortunately, it's not too bad and I didn't get really hurt, so please don't worry too much about me. I was coming home from Walmart when I turned into the driveway and accidentally pushed down on the accelerator instead of the brake. The garage door is slightly bent, but the pickup fortunately came to a halt when it bumped into your car. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but I know with your kind-hearted personality you will forgive me. I know, you know how much uh, you love me and, and, and care about me, um, and I love you too, my sweetheart. I cannot wait to hold you in my arms again, waiting for your safe return, your loving wife. Now, perhaps not the best letter to receive while you're away, but hardly the end of the world, right? This, however, is the sight that greeted the husband when he eventually returned home. <laughs> I'm not convinced that that email would have adequately prepared him <laughs> for what he saw when he got home. I don't know about you. Some massaging of the truth, maybe. In this series, we've been looking at the seven churches that receive letters, which is an old form of email, um, from Jesus <laughs> in Revelation 2 and 3. And the letters, they're designed to help the churches deal with the issues they were facing. Now, thankfully, Jesus' words were a little bit more direct than this lady's. This church that we're going to look at this morning, this final letter in chapter 2, is actually the longest letter in length. So if you haven't done so already, please find Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to dive straight in, reading from verse 18. This is what it says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira... Right, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. 
And so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will pay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's quite a letter, isn't it? Certainly not as sugar-coated as the one we read at the start. And I suppose the temptation for us this morning is to jump straight into that that really juicy bit in the middle, that woman, Jezebel. Who was she? What was she doing? What was she up to? What was Jesus going to do about it? And so on. However, I think if we do that, we're doing the church in Thyatira a disservice. Because this church didn't just receive one commendation from Jesus, or two, or three, or four, but five. There were five things that warranted praise from Jesus in Thyatira. In fact, they were doing so well that towards the end of the letter, Jesus says, I will not impose anything else upon you. Just hold on to what you are doing until I come. These guys had it on lock. Their church game was strong and Jesus wanted them to know it. And we need to see this as significant because Thyatira was really, it was just this this little place on the way to somewhere else. It's the sort of place that you might stop for a sausage roll and a coffee But once you'd used the facilities, you'd be on your way pretty sharpish. There wasn't a great deal going on. It's actually situated between Pergamum, which we looked at last week, which if you remember was the political capital of Asia Minor. It had that big library and that huge theatre and the the temples. And Sardis, which we're going to look at next week, which had a massive bathhouse and gymnasium and a temple to Artemis and one of the largest synagogues ever found in the ancient world. Two great cities, and here was Thyatira just stuck in the middle. I've heard rumours that they didn't even have a Costa coffee. (laughs) Can you imagine such a place? It's sort of like, you know, when you you travel somewhere else and people say, oh, where are you from? And you go, oh, Tamworth. And they look at you blankly and you go, near Birmingham. (laughs) And they go, oh, yeah, Birmingham. I've heard of Birmingham. It was like that for the Thyatirans. Where are you from? Thyatira. Near Pergamum. Oh, yeah. Near Pergamum. It was the back of beyond. The only person mentioned in the Bible who was from Thyatira was a woman called Lydia, who Paul met when he was in Philippi because she left to go and sell her purple cloth. And yet, there was a church here. There was a community of believers who were living out their faith. And Jesus saw them. He knew what they were up to. Even as the the rest of the world was content to ignore Thyatira, Jesus wasn't. And it's good, isn't it? It's good that Jesus cares about the seemingly unimportant things. Like me. And you. There are three ways that Jesus describes himself to the church in Thyatira. Firstly, he calls himself the Son of God. 
Now, if you are the son of something, it means that you have the nature of that thing. You might remember that Jesus calls James and John the sons of thunder because they had such a thunderous nature. Now, you might remember he calls the Pharisees sons of hell because of their hellish nature. So Jesus was the son of God. That means that his nature is divine, eternal, perfect, holy. The writer of the Hebrews calls him the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so the first thing we should think as we read this is that this is God who sees. This is God who is speaking into this situation. The second thing he talks about are his eyes being like blazing fire. He says like, they didn't say they are blazing fire, but there was something about the, the nature and the intensity of his stare that had a quality of a roaring fire. Not the sort of eyes you would want to stare into for too long, but it's with those eyes that he sees the believers in Thyatira. The third way he describes himself is to do with his feet being like burnished bronze, but we'll come back to that a bit later on. I want to just stick for a minute or two with what Jesus sees in this church. The first thing he sees is their love. Was it their love for God or was it their love for each other? Yes, both, because the two can't exist without each other. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. The two are linked, there's no distinction. In another of his letters, John says that whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. A big part of loving God is the way that we treat and love each other. What does that look like? Well, Jesus said in John 15, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. The type of love that Jesus expects is a sacrificial love. It's a divine love, an agape love. It's a, a love that puts the needs of others ahead of our own. A love that saves, a love that redeems, a love that restores. This is the sort of love that was being shown by the Thyatirans. We know that because this is the sort of love that Jesus expects from his followers. The second thing he sees is their faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. And we've heard this morning, haven't we, from Judith about hope. The ability to trust God, even when it seems unreasonable to do so. Even when perhaps the odds are stacked against you. It goes on saying, verse 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Thyatirans were unwavering in their trust and their faith in God. They had learned to trust him with their whole heart. The third thing Jesus sees is their service. The things that they did, the way in which their love and their faith manifested themselves. James says, doesn't he, in his letter, that if you see your brother or sister without clothes or food and say, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He says, well, the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. The Thyatirans, they weren't just talking a big game. They were living out their faith in loving acts of service towards each other. Remember Jesus said, whoever wants to be great, Amongst you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Sacrificial love is about service, and faith comes alive in the things that we do. 
The fourth thing Jesus sees is their, their perseverance, their stick to their ability to tough it out when things got rough. Again, James says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive a crown of life. The Lord has promised to those who love him. The Thyatirans were, they were in it for the long haul. They weren't about to give up anytime soon. But the final thing that Jesus sees in this church, and it's the thing that I think I was personally most challenged by this week as I um, read this letter, was their growth. He sees their growth. He says, you are doing more than you did at first. What does that mean? Well, it means that their love was more evident. It means that their faith was more deep and meaningful. It means that their acts of service had increased, that they were maturing through perseverance. As I sort of read those words, I, I kind of imagined Jesus as a, as a proud parent looking at his followers in Thyatira and seeing how much they had grown, how much they had matured in their faith. And I sort of wondered whether Jesus would feel the same way if he looked at me. Am I doing more than I did at first? I don't necessarily mean am I more busy, but have I matured? Is there more love in my life? Is there more faith? Am I serving people as I should? Am I persevering? Or have I stopped growing for some reason? But the thing I want you to notice about this section of the letter is that Jesus knows their deeds. Every act of love and service he sees, their faithfulness, their perseverance, their progress, their growth, Jesus sees it all. He knows their journey intimately. He knows everything that they do, every good work he sees. It kind of reminds me of that story um, in, in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, Come to you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And it says that the righteous will say to him, when? When, when, were you, when was it you that was, was sick and we looked after you? When, did we, when were you hungry? I'd have... I'd have recognized the sandals if I'd known it was you. When were you thirsty? When were you a stranger? When did we clothe you? And he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, Jesus sees the things that we do. He knows. And you might think that the, the contributions that you make to people, to the lives of others around you are, are insignificant or, or small or unimportant, but they're not insignificant to Jesus. They're not small or unimportant to Jesus. You might think that no one notices the little things that you do or the way that you love those people around you, but Jesus notices those things. In the world's eyes, Thyatira was unimportant. It was of no great significance, but it was significant to Jesus because there were people there who were living their lives for him who are following him, just as there are in this church as well. However, despite all of the good, there was something that needed addressing, or rather someone, and her name was Jezebel, except that it wasn't, not really, because to call your daughter Jezebel would be a very cruel thing to do indeed. It'd be sort of like if I'd named my son Judas Hitler Brockway. He wouldn't really be the kind of vibe I'd want to be sending. I don't think he'd get invited to a lot of birthday parties. 
Because you see, Jezebel, the, the original Jezebel, she was, she was really bad news. You can read about her in 1 Kings in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, and she married Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time. And 1 Kings 16 says that Ahab did more evil in the eyes of God than any of those who came before him. And Jezebel was in part responsible for that. Not entirely, but in part. She incited her husband to abandon the worship of Yahweh and instead encouraged the nation to worship Baal and Asherah. She brought in her own prophets and she, she tried to have the prophets of Israel killed and she would have succeeded if um, it were not for the administrator, a guy called Obadiah, who hid some in a cave. Later when Ahab tried to buy a vineyard uh, next to his house so he could expand his land and the owner refused and he, he had a sulk, she went behind his back and had this guy stoned to death. She was really bad news. And so this woman in Thyatira, although she was not called Jezebel, she embodied something of her spirit. Her desire to lead people astray, to take worship away from God and give it to lesser things. She was underhand and manipulative. She was in it to get her own way. She was a false prophet. She claimed to have a message from God. She claimed to have knowledge and understanding, but she was a liar. Jesus says, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, if you were here last week, or you could have been lying, that might feel quite familiar because Jesus has a similar complaint to those against who do that in Pergamum. He says, remember those who hold to, to Balaam and taught Balak to entice the Israelites to eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In other words, you're going after things that you shouldn't. I think I described it as um, flirting with sin last week. The difference, however, between Pergamum and Thyatira is in Pergamum, the problem was outside the church. In Thyatira, the problem was inside the church. They were accused of tolerating this woman in their own community. And we don't know what that looks like. We don't know whether she was given a platform during the worship or word, or whether she just hung around for the teas and coffees at the end and chatted to folk. We're not sure. But what we can be sure of is that there were believers who were beginning to listen to her. There were those who were described as having committed adultery with her, who were beginning to fall around with her, not in the sense of cheating on their husbands or wives sexually, but rather being unfaithful to God. There were those who were described as her children, those who've taken on board her teaching, her practices, and were to be a son to something was to embody its spirit, to carry its nature. She succeeded in pulling them away from God, and to be clear, this isn't a woman who just had a few wrong ideas or some odd, you know, you meet some folks sometimes like you just have some strange ideas. This was a woman who was out to destroy the church. That was her mission, to get at those who belonged to it. So what made her so attractive? Why were people kind of going after her teaching? Well, I think the answer is alluded to in verse 24 when Jesus speaks of those who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I love the... I love the sarcasm there. You didn't think Jesus was sarcastic, did you? So-called deep secrets. She was claiming some kind of special knowledge or revelation. She had some deeper understanding of the way things worked. It may even been the case that she made some predictions that came true or said some things about people that turned out to be real, like fortune tellers and mediums today. They claim to have access to, to powers that can help you in some mystical way, but she was a false prophet, and any wisdom and any power that she had did not come from God. 
And rather than helping people, she was leading them astray. And, you know, this is actually something that we really need to be aware of today. Jesus doesn't want us to be ignorant of this. He actually warns us about it. He gives us some tools for testing those that claim to have special revelation or power. If you um, look at Matthew 7 for a moment, verse 15, Jesus says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. He says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It's almost like he wants to drive a point home, isn't it? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Are you getting it? It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name, didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. You see, even if someone claims to know God, even if someone claims to have a message from him, or even if they've driven out some demons or or, or performed some miracles, it's no guarantee that the things that they're saying are from God. The most important thing, Jesus says, is their fruit. It's the things that their lives are producing. What do you see growing around them? Paul talks about the fruit of God's Spirit in Galatians 5. He says this, the acts of the flesh, they're obvious, aren't they? You know, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit. That's love. That's joy. That's peace. That's forbearance. That's kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The very things that the church in Thyatira were being praised for. Wasn't it? It was their love and it was their faith and their their perseverance. The fruit of the Spirit was evident in the church, but it was not evident in this woman. If you want to know if you can trust someone's words, you need to look at the evidence of their life. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. You know, people often assume that in order to be prophetic, that means to have um, a, a message from God, then you need to have some sort of divine revelation, some sort of magical picture that forms in your head or, or word or, or someone's deepest, darkest secrets. And, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes that's the case. I can probably count on one hand the amount of times that's happened to me. It's normally more of a, a vague sense of something or an, or an idea that, that, that God drops it in. But actually, I think most of the time, being prophetic isn't about that at all. I think being prophetic is about walking with Jesus for long enough that you can speak into any situation with his voice. I'll say that again. I think being prophetic is about walking with Jesus for long enough that you can speak into any situation with his voice. That you know what he would say because he's said it to you before. Because you recognize his voice. My sheep recognize my voice, he says. And I know for a fact that most of you are way more prophetic than you realize. I'm saying prophetic, not pathetic. (laughs) Way more prophetic. 
You are regularly speaking into people's lives on his behalf, whether you know it or not. The reason I know that is because the fruit of this church is their love, sacrificial love, agape love. Yeah, tons of it. You guys are awesome at the love thing. Come on, you visit each other in hospital, you, you care for each other when you're sick, you make sure people don't suffer alone, you, you lift people up, you encourage them. My goodness, the encouragement you've put into my life has made all the difference to me. You're so loving. Is there joy? Yeah, there's joy. There's fun, there's laughter, there's silliness, there's jokes and games, balloons this morning, a bit of banter every now and again. You know, often I arrive at church and I'm quite apprehensive. I'm thinking, have I got the right word for today? Have I, have I prepared the right Bible passage to read? How it's going to go? What's the worship going to be like? But, you know, I always leave with joy. Not because it's over. <laughs> but because this is a joyous place to be. It's a joyous place to be. Is there peace? Yeah, there's peace. I know this place is a, is a sanctuary for many people. And you know, peace in, in, in the biblical sense isn't just about the absence of conflict. It's about wholeness. It's about being put back together. And I know that this place has been that for many of us. Is there forbearance, patience? Yeah. My goodness, some of you have been walking through the, the darkest valleys for the longest times. And you're still going. Pressing on towards the goal. Keeping hope in front of you. I love that word from Judith today. Don't lose the sense of that keeping hope in front of you, and you're an inspiration to the rest of us. What about kindness? Yeah, you're kind. You're always finding new ways to bless each other. I can't really give you examples in my own life, not because you haven't been kind, but because I don't want to embarrass those people that have been kind to me, but the amount of times I've been blessed by a, a kind word or a thoughtful gesture or a little gift. I'm not angling for more. <laughs> Is there goodness? You guys ooze goodness. It's coming out of your ears. You know, sometimes we have people visit the manor house and the church in the week. Um, this week I was showing around a couple of, of people from Aldi, Aldi head office that had come to see the sorts of things that we do. And I was walking around the buildings and I was talking about this project or that project or that group or that meeting. And it just sort of rolls off the tongue because we're so used to doing it. But they were astounded at the good works that are coming out of this community. Is there faithfulness? Yeah, there's faithfulness. I've been walking with Jesus for about 25 years, but I'm still a toddler compared to some of you. I'm not saying you're old. <laughs> but I want to be where some of you are in 10, 20, 30 years' time. I hope I'm as faithful. Is there gentleness? Yeah, there is. You know, when I think about this church, I don't see a lot of people shouting or, or clambering to get their own way or, or trying to get hold of a platform. I just see people gently loving and caring for each other. A lot of Pentecostal churches you go to, they might finish the service with a time of ministry and it'll be very extrovert and loud and people will be shouting and falling over and, and that stuff's great. It is sometimes. But what I see at the end of the service here, more often than not, is just people in twos or, or threes just praying for each other, just caring for each other, gently loving each other and that's so beautiful. Don't ever lose that. It's precious. What about self-control? Yeah, there's that too. I know many of you are just seeking to live your lives the best you can before your God. 
not giving in to temptation or, or giving up on following Jesus. I know that's not always easy and, and mastering ourselves is often the hardest challenge that we face and victories can seem small and fleeting, but they're there. The fruit of this church, the fruit of your lives is good. Are you perfect? No. <laughs> could you do better in some of these areas? Yeah, probably. I could, for sure. But if you came to me, or if you stood in the front of this church and you said, you know, I feel God is, is saying something here this morning, I would take that seriously. Because the evidence of your life speaks to the genuine nature of your relationship with Jesus. I'm grateful for Judith for what she brought to us this morning. But with this woman, there was no evidence. None of it. The things that her life was producing um, were the other stuff that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. The sexual immorality, the impurity, the debauchery, the idolatry. And Jesus has some really harsh words of warning for her. And those that were following, choosing to follow her, he says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering along with those who begin to fall around with her unless they turn back. You know, there's always a way, isn't there? For, even for those that have been seduced. She, he says, she's settled in her rebellion. She's not going to turn back. But grace is always on offer for those who are willing to accept it. But for those who don't want a way back, her children, as they're called here, there's only death. The phrase, I will strike her children dead, is actually a paraphrase. It more literally says, I will kill her children with death because death is the end for all of those who stand opposed to God. And I don't think we should be too shocked or surprised by this language this morning. Do you remember what Jesus said about those who cause his followers to stumble? He said it'd be better for them to have a large millstone tied around their neck and then to be drowned in the depths of the ocean. Jesus doesn't pull any punches when it comes to his church. He is jealous for it. He will fight for it and he will deal ever so harshly with those who seek to destroy it. Those bronze feet I mentioned earlier, it's symbolic of judgment. The judgment that Jesus brings against those who would seek to lead others astray. Jesus finishes his letter this way. He says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Hold fast to the things that we have. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. He says, let's hold unswervingly. That means we, go, we stick on a straight line. None of, none of that. Unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day Approaching. What we found is, is precious. It's worth hanging on to, but you know, sometimes we're a bit fickle, aren't we? Sometimes we get distracted, we get seduced by something that sounds exciting. But you know what? We don't need the so-called deep secrets of Satan. The only thing we need is the revelation of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who reveals the Father to us. His message isn't hidden in the shadows. It's revealed in the light. And you're not missing out. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and I will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That little odd bit in there is a quote from Psalm 2. When Jesus quotes Psalms, he doesn't just want you to look at the bit that's there. He wants you to look at the whole psalm, the sense of the psalm. And that's a psalm that talks about the coming judgment for those who defy God, 
but also the hope for those that trust in him. And the morning star he offers is himself. It says, at the end of Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus gives himself to those who trust him and remain faithful to the end. So, what's the application for us this morning? How do we bring all this together? What are we going to take away from this this morning? I just want to give you three quick questions for you to ponder, think about. You can discuss them in your life groups this week. Normally we have more than three questions, don't we? I'll probably write some more tomorrow. But three for you to think about this morning. Firstly, Jesus says to Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. My first question is, are we growing? Are we growing? Is our love strong like it was in Thyatira, or is it grown a bit cold like it had in Ephesus? Are we persevering like those in Thyatira, or do we need encouragement like those in Smyrna did? Are we being faithful like those in Thyatira, or are we distracted like those in Pergamum? Are we serving like those in Thyatira, or are our deeds unfinished like those in Sardis? A little preview for next week there for you. Are we growing this morning? Secondly, Jesus said that he searches the hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. There's nothing that goes unnoticed by Jesus. No small act of kindness or love missed by him. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me, is what he says to us. So my question is, what kind of fruit are we producing? As we look at that list in Galatians 5, do we, do we see more acts of the flesh or do we see more fruits of the Spirit? Are we maybe just a little bit in danger of committing adultery with the spirit of Jezebel? What kind of fruit are we producing? And thirdly, Jesus says, hold on to what you have until I come. Are we invested in what we've found? Do our roots roots go down deep? Are we seeking the, the revelation and the presence and the power of Jesus in our lives? Are we in it for the long haul? Or have we just found ourselves giving up a little bit Recently, are we invested in what we've found? I wonder if the band would come and join me on stage. Are we growing? What kind of fruit are we producing? And are we invested in what we found? Would you stand with me? I know time has gone on a little bit from us this morning. It's been with some good stuff, hasn't it? But I think it'd be good just to be still for a minute. And maybe just, let's just invite the Holy Spirit just to speak to us as we consider those questions. Maybe just reveal to us if there's areas where we stop growing. Areas where we need to spend a bit of time thinking and praying Maybe if we, we're taking a hard look at ourselves this morning and we're just thinking, I'm just not sure that I'm producing the right fruit anymore. Has something changed inside? Or maybe that message of Judas really spoke to you earlier and, and, and you're someone who is perhaps just struggling at the moment and, and perseverance is the word for you this morning. It's just feeling really hard and that sense of, of hope in Jesus has kind of left 
maybe that's you today, this is your chance just to connect with God this morning. Let's just listen to what he wants to say to us.